Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I am your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. And this is it. We're going to wrap up the first 164 pages of the big book. I might read a little bit of the appendices and, and maybe a couple, maybe a story, depending on how fast we get through this. I'm pretty excited to have made it through the first 164 pages of this thing. When I set out to create the podcast, you know, I didn't really know how far I was going to take it what my interests were going to be long-term. I have a tendency to start things and not follow through. And I kind of made a promise to myself to make it through at least that first portion of the big book. And then that was going to be kind of the decider on what would happen next. I started this podcast in July and I feel like it's come a long ways. I am thankful and grateful for everybody that has continued to listen and anybody new that's joining uh, this journey I've decided to undertake. You know, I've appreciated everybody reaching out who has shared you know, how this podcast has affected them and sharing their recovery with me. It means a lot. It means a hell of a lot. I started with the general interest of hopefully maybe reaching one other person who found some use in this. And I have found more than just one. And along the way, you know, it helped me. This isn't my first time going through the book. I've gone through this book a bunch of times, uh, but I seem to get something different out of it every single time. And this time was no different. So as a check-in, where I'm at is I'm going to continue this podcast. I've said that a few times, but this is like kind of my confirmation that we're going to continue on. And it's going to change a little bit because I'm not going to just be static reading out of the big book. Uh, The next couple episodes, I'm going to be reading a little bit uh, of different literature and talking about that. Not sure how big those episodes are going to be or, you know, I I really don't have a concrete week-by-week plan. Uh, That doesn't mean that I don't have a general plan of how this is going to go. Like I said before, I'm going to transition into reading the 12 by 12. We're going to have some guests on. I think the guests might at first be treated as sort of supplementary bonus episodes just to kind of see how they do. That way there is still a regular upload that is in the kind of style of how this podcast has been going. And I, you know, I will also be working towards getting on to other folks podcast is kind of like a a way to network and branch out and just create a space like that would be you know if I were going to shoot for the moon on this my end goal would be to see a a space where people continue to talk about this stuff whether I'm involved or not and talk about it in a healthy way you know and what that space would look like is atheists who have found their way into AA and are struggling uh, people that are kind of on the fence about what their beliefs might be but maybe just want to learn a little bit more about this program. Uh, People who are believers that maybe have friends that are atheists or just want to understand how other people might think. You know, people that maybe are on the fence of whether or not they even want to stick around AA. Maybe they found a different program and this is kind of their jumping off point, you know, and they're exploring other options before moving on. I want this to be a safe environment for everybody to just share their recovery with, with each other and learn from each other. That's my shoot for the moon scenario. Whatever that space might look like, be it a Facebook group that's active, other online you know, forums, maybe someday a Zoom call where everybody gets together and just 
we have a we have a meeting and we talk. I don't know yet what what that would look like, but that's that's where that that is. Right now, every aspect of this has already superseded all of my potential expectations. Like I said, I would have been perfectly happy just helping one person make it through this book. I have helped so far like 20, 20 something. That's fucking amazing to me. That makes me so happy. Uh, whether or not they walk away thinking that this book is helpful for them, maybe, you know, the fact that they explored this hopefully in a, in a new light makes me really happy. You know, at least one person who has regularly been listening has never read this book before, but they are in active sobriety and they didn't read it because of all the God stuff in there and they've made it through the book. And now they can finally make that decision for themselves of what this book means to them. Yeah, that makes me happy. It makes me excited. It makes me ready to continue on with this. My social media presence is kind of all over the place. I, I just really have a weird relationship with social media, uh, especially if it's a new form. I kind of get super sucked into it and then never really return. This happened with Twitter. I got super sucked into Twitter and then you know, I just spent years avoiding it. And then, you know, I barely even tweet. And that doesn't mean that people can't reach me on there. I do check in on those sites, Instagram, Twitter. I just don't know how to make that a regular like part of my outgoing rotation involving this podcast. So it's a little all over the place. Right now I'm stuck, sucked into Twitter. I was thinking about trying to use that platform to kind of, you know, make quick videos about some of the stuff I've talked about in here and and hopefully get people interested organically into my my podcast in this space, but I just TikTok is a weird place. It's a weird place. All this social media stuff is super weird. And it's based on just like the bare minimum of what our value actually is. And so it's so easy to get sucked into that dopamine surge of hitting the next and next and next and like living in fear of missing out. And it triggers all all this kind of negative side of like me in some instances. And I know the that, that like that platform and many others are designed to get to know what you like and start putting things you don't in front of you because those interactions will get a better reaction. You know, controversy always breeds more interaction than positivity. I can see it. You know, I've been using that app for a little while. I don't know if folks that are listening have ever even really explored it. And I can see it. it's supposed to just keep pushing things that you enjoy. But I keep ending up on some weird TikToks, like really fucked up opinions and really fucked up, you know, takes on, on the things that I'm interested in. And at first I was interacting pretty heavily with that. And then I kind of saw, you know, this sort of system that's being created here. And so I'm trying not to engage in that. I'm trying to just focus on recovery, you know, based content, whatever that means. But I can kind of see that it, it just might not be the thing for me. I'm still living in a little bit of avoidance. You know, my car's been acting up again. I, you know, recently, about a month ago, a little over a month ago, broke things off with my girlfriend who I'd been with for a year. Nothing's in turmoil, but things are in flux. And I know my knee-jerk reaction to a lot of that is avoidance. I know how I operate by now. So I've got some rules set in place to kind of combat that. And I have, for the most part, been following that. The next step is to get more uh, physically active in my life because I stopped basically doing anything that took any kind of physical exertion. And now I'm having a hard time getting that habit broken. You know, it used to be extremely physical and out, outgoing and outdoorsy even. So overall, you know, it, despite all that, uh, things are going fairly well. I, I had... 
and I'm, you know, I'm happy to be here. I'm genuinely happy to be here. Overall, my life has continued to maintain a consistency. My car having constant problems, like it kind of gets to me because it just seems to be my, my luck. But look, you know, it's looking back on my life and seeing that stuff like this used to just bring me so fucking low. And I just kind of live in just this garbage feeling, you know, and it's not really happening. I, you know, I had to recently cut a friend out of my life. I had my narcissistic cheating ex-girlfriend find my TikTok and randomly start following me and liking all my videos. And, you know, this is kind of worth talking about. So where I'm at with that, this person was extremely harmful to me and not just in what she did to me, but in like what, what I was doing as a, as a reaction to that, you know, she was very narcissistic and gaslit me a lot, lied to me a lot, cheated on me a lot. That ultimately that whole relationship, I'm not going to get too much into that. Cause that's a whole fucking podcast episode all by itself. The details aren't that important to what I'm about to say though. Mainly there was a lot of harm done, uh, mostly emotional. And in return, I was falling into old behaviors of manipulation, of depression, of using my traumas as some sort of social currency to manipulate her into respecting me more, or at least feeling bad for me and then getting that kind of a reaction, you know, just, it just was all over the place. And when we finally split up, when I finally caught her red handed, and I was finally to the point to where I was done with this letting shit slide kind of mentality, thinking that if I just make it through this, you know, she was a person who had had a lot of abandonment, or at least that's what I had been led to believe. People had just left her constantly, even though she did, did her, you know, quote unquote, did her best. And I identified heavily with that. You know, this is part of like what a narcissist does. They appeal to our emotions. And she got out of active addiction and started going to, to recovery programs on her own, or at least it seemed that way. And through that, you know, she would tell me that she's just really scared of people leaving her. And so she acts a certain way and tries to push people away, blah, blah, blah. So it was really hard for me to pull that trigger on leaving her because I, I understood that feeling. And I was determined to just ride this out because I saw all this, you know, potential for her, blah, blah, blah. So again, I don't need to go fully down the road. Just there was a lot of damage done uh, in that relationship. And it took me a long time to pry myself out of that relationship. And it was a lot of work to put those boundaries up and barriers up. And when it finally happened and when I finally said, I deny you access, this was, was the last thing I told her was I deny you access because it was, it was harming my recovery. It was harming me as a person. It was just, I was just drinking that poison, hoping she'd get better. I denied her that access, cut her completely out and worked on moving on. I thank her because it got me really serious about not just my, my, I mean, I was already pretty serious about my recovery, but it got me really serious about my underlying traumas, my underlying mental health, because to me, that meant that I hadn't really worked on that stuff. I'd worked on it, right, on my own, in my own way, using recovery programs as, as a way to do that. But those, it didn't take long in our relationship before I was acting similarly to my old ways, just not alcoholically. Like I was sober and I was still kind of falling into these old behaviors. So I hadn't really treated those underlying traumas. So it got me really serious about my mental health and it pushed me into counseling, real counseling, regular weekly counseling that I took seriously and didn't just give lip service to. Like I showed up to those counseling sessions. I did the work, I did the homework. I learned a lot. So in, in a weird way, I'm thankful for that experience. So it's been about 18 months, right? No connection, no contact. I hadn't looked her up, hadn't kept my distance, whatever. She hadn't found me or connected with me. Anyway, she found my TikTok and it kind of just, it kind of just muddied the waters a little bit. 
mucked some stuff up, you know? I had done a lot to sift through all, all of that bullshit and try to make sure that all the glass was out of that, you know, that stream. I'm kind of thankful that she, you know, she didn't reach out or contact me, but she kind of, whatever had settled, kind of moved that stuff around so I could examine it again in a fresh set of eyes with some distance and see well, how have I, how have I progressed? Where am I? Am I still triggered by all this stuff? Is she still running around in my head somewhere? And I, and I just haven't, you know, really put that to, to rest. Ha have I actually done the work on the underlying traumas or did I only work on the trauma that she caused me? So I was able to kind of sift through that stuff again, see if there's any other glass maybe I miss. And it might not seem like that big of a deal. Previously, in an old life, I would have just been like, that's not a big deal. And I would have I would have not given it any time. I wouldn't have just examined it. Like, I'm not overthinking it. It's not running around in my head. I haven't, um, I didn't overreact or even react. I, I, I just allowed myself to stop and like sit with it, examine it. This thing happened. This person caused me a lot of harm. Where am I actually at with that? Let's look at it real quick. See how all the cards lay. And then, you know, if there's anything to work on, we'll work on that. Uh, you know, old me would have been like, this This thing happened. I don't need to pay it any attention. And then six months from now, I would still have that trauma that I was made aware of, but ignored. You know what I mean? So I feel really good about that whole interaction and that whole situation. I stuck to my guns. I didn't respond to her. I didn't send her a message. I didn't, um, the only thing is I did was I told someone else who had had a similar experience, one of her family members that, that had been talking with me, who had kind of helped me clear up some of the lies and some of the, the damage that she had done or tried to do socially. And, um, I reached out to her and I said, Hey, this person has a new TikTok. They, they followed me and liked my stuff. They might try to do the same to you. I have blocked them. And that was pretty much it. I didn't talk about shit. I didn't go run off to a bunch of people and be like, hey, this dirtbag piece of shit. Um, I threw a couple jokes at a friend who was there for the whole thing. And I think I can live with that. You know, basically, I just didn't go on and on about it. I just looked at it, examined it, held it up against my recovery and the work that I've done and can safely and 100% say that I have grown past it. And I have fully and truly moved on from something that caused me a lot of harm. And that feels amazing. It feels amazing. It doesn't just feel amazing to, to know that I've done the work, but it feels amazing to know that I know how to examine this stuff now and I know how to not ignore it. And I know how to, how to uh, I'm not just burying shit. You know, I'm willing to look at it and willing to examine it, willing to allow it to see, see the light of day uh, and share that with others who maybe have had something similar that they've chosen to bury instead. You know, don't bury that shit. You can set it aside. I think that's healthy. I've done that plenty of times, set stuff aside. But for me, burying that stuff was, was suicide, slowly killing me. So let's, uh, let's get into the reading, the Stoic reading, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the book and we'll finish out the 164 pages that, uh, that, I, that I started back in July. Um, if you have any interest in talking with me and interest in that space I talked about, you can find me on Facebook at... An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. There's both a Facebook group and a Facebook page that are created. The page is more just like kind of like a business page. It's a little cumbersome on my end to use. So I don't use it that often. I just sort of post new episodes and, and it allows me to kind of run an ad if I so choose. Uh, when I initially launched the podcast, I did that. I spent like $10 and just, you know, sent that out into the world. 
The other one, the page, is a little bit more easier to use. It operates just like any other Facebook page. Anybody can post on there. If there's any disrespect or anything like that, of course, that, that'll, that'll be taken out. But um, that's the one I would encourage you guys to focus on and gals, whatever uh, folks prefer. You can find me on Twitter at anatheistin. Uh, if you are inclined to find me on TikTok, you can find me at the Beardo. Uh, that is B-E-I-R-D-O. Uh, if you'd like to just send me a direct email, you can do that at one atheist in AA at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram at atheist underscore in underscore AA. Again, my social media presence isn't that great. I'm not really good at keeping up on that because I don't really know how to, I guess, actively create that content. It seems so forced and fake. Uh, I do much better when I can just ramble about stuff, <laughs> to be quite honest. So, um, but that doesn't mean that you can't react with me and share with me how you're doing. You know, if you interact with me, I will interact back. I just, again, I'm not really good at creating that content out of the air. So my post might seem limited. But that doesn't mean you can't reach out. All right. The daily stoic reading is going to be for November 16th when this hopefully comes out. Hope and fear are the same. Hikado says... Cease to hope and you will cease to fear. The primary cause of both these ills is that instead of adapting ourselves to present circumstances, we send out thoughts too far ahead. Seneca, Moral Letters, 5.7b-8. Hope is generally regarded as good. Fear is generally regarded as bad. To a Stoic like Hikado, known as Hikado of Rhodes, I think I'm saying that right, they are the same. Both are projections into the future about things we do not control. Both are the enemy of this present moment that you are actually in. Both mean you're living a life in opposition to amor fati. Uh, in Latin, that means love of fate, I think. At least that's what Google just told me. It's not about overcoming our fears, but understanding that both hope and fear contain a dangerous amount of want and worry in them. And, sadly, the want is what causes the worry. Yeah, I really like that reading. I like kind of the, the general message it's sending. You know, don't don't live too far in the future. Uh, don't let your fear control you. Don't let your, for me, it's don't let my expectations determine the way that I'm going to act. My expectations of how I think things will go in the future act today. Like I can't live in the future. And if I am constantly acting uh, in a way that is in relation of something I'm scared of that hasn't happened yet, which is a very anxiety-based thing, then I'm not living at all today. I'm completely living outside of today. I know, so broader speaking, it's really easy for me to kind of get stuck in that if I don't make plans of any kind, if I don't set things in motion of any kind, uh, then, you know, what's the point, right? Like, I won't be working towards something. I have to do both, you know? It, it kind of speaks to what I was talking about last week, this idea that I can have a goal, and I can work towards that goal and I can prepare myself for the, you know, the hope that that goal comes through, but I need to be prepared for the possibility that it's not going to work out or that I'll need to adapt or that I'll need to change things. And I can't live in that hope and that fear that it's not going to work out. I have to live in the action today that gets me there. That's kind of what I'm getting out of this reading. And when it comes to my recovery, you know, this was, this was a lesson that wasn't easy for me to learn right away. I, as well as I thought I was doing with the idea that I wasn't living in the future, I was, I've talked many times before that, you know, relationships were a difficult thing for me, was in sort of a panic about the idea that I could, I could end up alone. And that if, if I didn't get at it, get at it now, 
then that clock was going to run out. You know, I'm 41 to, you know, now at the time I was 39 and it was, it was a legitimate obsession in my brain that if I didn't get into a relationship, then I was going to die alone. Like it's, it, I was doing this active calculation of, you know, it's going to take this much time to get to know someone to see if I even want to start a relationship with them. It's going to take this much time in that relationship to see if it's somebody that I want to have like a permanence with. And what if that doesn't work out? Then I'm, you know, back to square one. And now suddenly I'm 50. Like that's like, it just was on repeat and living in that fear, not, not addressing any of the reasons why I had that fear. I created just a constant spiral. You know, I was remaining recovered. I was in active recovery. I was uh, participatory. My drinking wasn't really at risk. It seemed like I, I was maintaining uh, what was necessary for me to, to stay abstained, but I was barely living in the moment. Everything I did was for the, uh, the eventual for that short period. You know, I worked out in the gym so that I could eventually meet a woman who might be interested in me. I took on certain interests because I thought I could share that with the person in the future. I didn't take I, most of the things that I became interested in. I became interested with the caveat that this would be something I could share with someone. I lived so far in the future that I missed out on the moments. I missed out on the days. And, you know, that it's a painful time for me to look back on. I'm I'm happy about my recovery and I'm happy about the, the strides I had made. And, you know, a lot of that seemed necessary for the work that came from it and the growth that I've made. But knowing that even in recovery that I was still that way was kind of painful, you know, and, and that it comes down to not living in the hope or the fear of the future. Experience those feelings, but living in those feelings today uh, is just damaging and it, you know, it can leave you missing out on quite a lot. So before we get diving into the last portion of the big book, I, again, I just have to warn you, uh, this is the only time I, rec I can record. My roommate is currently teaching jujitsu to, uh, the cabinetry in the kitchen, I think. I have no fucking idea, uh, but he is the loudest cook I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I apologize ahead of time uh, if there's some bleed through from that experience in this in this episode. The last thing where we left off was on um, uh, page 160. It was actually kind of going into minor detail of what would eventually become a meeting, like what we right now experience as a meeting. Uh, they were generally talking about I'll just reread it. Uh, in addition to these casual get-togethers, it became customary to set apart one night a week for a meeting to be attended by anyone or everyone interested in a spiritual way of life. Aside from fellowship and sociability, the prime object uh, the prime object was to provide a time and place where new people might bring their problems. That's a pretty powerful thing that they realized fairly early on was that and that's honestly when it comes to this program, the the fellowship and the regular aspect, the regular nature of it. People hate the rituals and they hate the fact that it's a regular meeting and the times are all the same, but that reliability in the program and that rep repetition is, is helpful to people to, to have uh, a sense of like normalcy, I guess. Like it's hard to kind of explain without over explaining, at least that's my, my problem. Basically what I look at is when I look at my younger self and how easy it was for me to grow to know people. I grew to know people that were based on the regular activities that I did. Uh, you, you know, for some it was sports, right? For some, uh, for me, it was like kind of a geeky thing. I am still friends with people that I used to play hacky sack with regularly. 
we had a regular place that we did this at. We had a regular time that we did it at. Like I was in one of my friend's weddings. Like it, it 30 years later, we're still friends, you know, and there's people that that's how that works. This regular, uh, regular place, time and place. Um, I think that's so important for social structures. When you look at something as, as important as recovery and you look at a time and place being a regular event and you look at sort of kind of a, a set structure that goes around that and then a fellowship that, that comes along with that, that's what has helped strengthen this this program. And that's, you know, what I think sets it aside from a lot of other recovery and why, well, I mean, it's big enough, right, that there's a meeting essentially at any time, uh, which is helpful and which is a part of that. But it's that it's that followed with fellowship part. I genuinely get to know people in this program and it's genuinely encouraged to get to know people in this program. I think that's what will continue to keep having me come back. And I'm really, really thankful that they, they were like, okay, these get togethers are great, but we need to do a little more. That's not, that's not quite cutting it. You know, back to the reading outsider outsiders became interested. One man and his wife placed their large home at the disposal of this strangely assorted crowd. This couple has since became so fascinated that they have dedicated their home to the work. Now, as an aside, this is something that has continued to happen since the inception of, of AA, people giving up their homes. Here in my town, there is a few. There's one really prominent one that is in the downtown kind of epicenter of the city, and it's it's a fucking mansion. It's a huge, huge building. You know, somebody had given it over to the program, um, and now it is a recovery center. Like, it doesn't just cater to only AA. There's other recovery stuff that happens in there. And there's a bunch of rooms upstairs. There's like multiple levels so that multiple meetings can happen at the same time. There's events that happen there. Like it is a hub. It's open all the time. So people can go and like just sort of relax, be in a safe place. It houses AANA, Overeaters Anonymous. There is just a huge, I'm sure there's other ones, uh, other recovery types. There's yoga recovery. There's, there's refuge recovery. They have meetings there. Uh, there is sounds of recovery, which is like um, just like a supplement to recovery through through music. There's just a ton of stuff that happens there. There's another one to kind of point out how vastly different some of these centers are. There's another house that was given over. Both of these places have been visited by Bill Wilson and by some of the other people that kind of helped, you know, that helped found this and were at least more well-known folks in recovery, different speakers and stuff. Uh, and there's another one. It's called Scully's and it is a... It is a like uh, throwback, a, a, an artifact of old recovery. Like if you want to see how far we've come, you know, you go to you go to the one I just mentioned downtown, where it's just this big open like every recovery is available and all all recovery is acceptable as long as it keeps you sober. And and then you go to Scully's and if it, it wasn't written in the book, you can't talk about it. And it's very strict and it's very rigid and specific and fundamentalist. And at the same time, I have heard like some of the most epic yelling matches and even like people throwing chairs at each other. Not to say that that's what happens all the time, just to say that like there is like a raw recovery that can happen there. And it's a lot different than what I'm really interested in. I've gone to a couple of meetings just to experience it. It's not for me. Some people need that. They need that kind of recovery. So I, to me, these houses just really open a lot of people. I try to take people that are new to recovery to both so they can just sort of see, but it, neither of these would have happened if, if somebody hadn't given these houses up, you know, and Scully's was given up. I think one of the families that was a, a you know, a friend of Bill W specifically Bill W not, not in the 
uh, ambiguous sense of, you know, being sneaky about saying you're an AA, gave that over. And so it's ma- it's been maintained as a recovery house ever since. And there's people that, you know, have been going there decades specifically to that house to get sober. That shit's amazing to me. Back to the reading. Many distracted wife has, has visited this house to find loving and understanding companionship among women who knew her problem, to hear from the lips of their husbands what had happened to them, to be advised how her own wayward mate might be hospitalized and approached when next he stumbled. Okay, yeah, it's just a place of recovery. Obviously, that looked different back then. We've talked about that. I've talked about that. Many a man yet dazed from his hospital experience has stepped over the threshold of that home into freedom. Many an alcoholic who entered there came away with an answer. He succumbed to that gay crowd inside, who laughed at their own misfortunes and understood his. Impressed by those who visited him at the hospital, he capitulated entirely when later, in an upper room of his house, he heard the story of some man whose experience closely tallied with his own. The experience on the faces of the woman, that indefinable something in the eyes of the men, the stimulating and electric atmosphere of the place, conspired to let him know that there was haven at last. The very practical approach of his problems, the absence of intolerance of any kind, the informality, the genuine democracy, the uncanny understanding which these people had were irresistible. I and that's how I felt. I mean, I had a recovery club that I went to, and I, and I it's a little far away, so I haven't made it there for you know since COVID, honestly. Um, and my ex that I m- mentioned in this episode was banging some of the dudes there, so there's you know that to kind of contest with. Regardless, that's what that was for me. You know, they have a speaker meeting every Saturday, and you know the first half of it is just laughter and joy. Like it's just it's just people having a good time. You know, they, they have a raffle that you can win. They have some stuff they give out. They have cake, people just hanging out, catching up. And then they get down to the serious business of, of recovery. And then afterwards, it's more of the same. Friday nights, you know, for me, the, the meeting that I go to, the secular one that I attend, that's my home group, that one, same same kind of thing. You know, we go out to, to eat afterwards and just and just have some fellowship. And that translates to going and... You know, they have a hike thing that they do every second Saturday now of every month. They have, we, we go camping in the summertime together. We have picnics in the park. Uh, we get to know each other's families. It's all very appealing. And it's and it's that attraction rather than promotion that I think for me, seeing the, the proof in the pudding, seeing people in recovery and living life is, uh, again, that's why I keep coming back to this. He and his wife would leave elated by the thought of what they could now do for some stricken acquaintance in his family. They knew they had a host of new friends. It seemed they had known these strangers always. They had seen miracles, and one was to come to them. They had visioned the great reality, their loving and all-powerful creator. Now, this house will hardly accommodate its weekly visitors, for they number 60 or 80 as a rule. Alcoholics are being attracted from far and near. From surrounding towns, families drive long distances to be present. A community 30 miles away has 15 fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Being a large place, we think that someday its fellowship will number many hundreds. See, they had faith in that, man. I think that's so cool. Uh, But life among Alcoholics Anonymous is more than attending gatherings and visiting hospitals. Cleaning up old scrapes, helping to settle family differences, explaining the disheartened son to his irate parents, lending money and securing jobs for each other. When justified, these are everyday occurrences. No one is too discredited or has sunk too low to be welcomed cordially if he means business. When I came out of prison, the first job that I had when I came out of prison was 
because my temporary sponsor was a gentleman that came inside of the prison. His name was Chuck. We formed a bond. He's well known in the community because he did so much service work for people. Uh, unfortunately, he has passed away. Uh, he had some lung complications due to working in a, in a shitty work environment that uh, around a lot of asbestos. Anyways, he took a chance on me gave me my first he didn't give me my first job he gave he got me an interview for my first job i had to earn the job got me an interview in the field that i wanted to work in and i'll never forget it you know he didn't have to do that i didn't even ask him to it wasn't like i was begging for work you know i was willing to just kind of figure that out but through my shares he learned that i wanted to work in the automotive the auto body industry because i was an artist and wanted to airbrush eventually and learn how to paint cars and he happened to know somebody that did the thing so he got me connected with someone and, you know, I'll never forget that. That did so much for me getting out, you know. Uh, anyways, I wouldn't say that means that the people listening to this should just run out and try giving everybody jobs and, you know, be cautious. Like, it's your reputation. So ultimately, you know, it's not a requirement that we help each other get jobs. It's just things that happen. It's just the way things can happen, you know. That, that's how any community works. That's what communities do is they start to look out for each other. You know, someone in a share might say that they're struggling to find daycare and someone will say after the meeting, I can watch your kids. That person can now go find a job. Like there's people that can help, you know, and you're not going to find that on your own. You're not going to find that just reading self-help books. You might find some recovery in there. But for me, I think you're missing out on a lot of stuff by just um, isolating your recovery. Uh, anyways, back to the reading. No one is too discredited or has sunk too low to be welcomed cordially if he means business. Social distinctions, petty rivalries, and jealousies, these are laughed out of countenance. I'm going to say this is true. This should be true. The only people that should that should, that there should be even any kind of a boundary to are people that are like trying to drink, bring alcohol into the meeting, which I have seen, or who are currently drunk and disruptive, you know? But even then, I've seen I've seen that happen. I've seen somebody come in drunk and having a hard time. Even then, they weren't judged harshly. That's the plan, right? That's the goal. You know, I had there was two gentlemen that uh, asked him to go outside, and then they talked. They spent an hour talking to that guy. I have no idea if he ever came back. No idea what they really actually talked about, but they just talked to him. And they basically had a meeting with him outside so that, you know, both meetings could happen. I've seen moms bring their kids in, and I've seen those kids act crazy, and I've seen someone else volunteer to hang out with that kid outside of the meeting so that that person can get their recovery. You know, I've seen I've seen some amazing things happen to some people that were at their absolute lowest uh, because we, we were able to meet that without judgment and just be a safe place for them. That's why I, I work so hard on this whole atheism thing, because I, that should be the case across the board. Like there shouldn't be an instance ever where somebody's like, you're an atheist. Well, you should probably go to an atheist meeting like that should just never be like at. At most, people should be asking questions about each other. You know, if somebody has a different version of how they work their program, I ask them questions. That's the goal. And that should be, I mean, if we're if we're accepting that somebody that's currently using can attend a meeting and disruptive people, you know, at their worst, then, then we should all be doing that based on our differences in other places. Like, it shouldn't just come come from those places. Like, I mean, we should be able to set aside our politics. We should be able to set aside our religions or lack of religion. So this is what I call to when people try to gatekeep recovery. 
The program was literally built, literally foundationally built on an everybody's welcome, common ground. And I, I will vocally do my best to protect that. I will stand up for that 100% as often as I can. Being wrecked in the same vessel, being restored and united under one God, with hearts and minds attuned to the welfare of others, the things which matter so much to those people no longer signify much to them. How could they? Under only slightly different conditions, the same thing is taking place in many eastern cities. In one of these, there is a well-known hospital for the treatment of alcoholic and drug addiction. Six years ago, one of our number was a patient there. Many of us have felt for the first time the presence and power of God within its walls. We are greatly indebted to the doctor in attendance there, for he, although it might prejudice his own work, has told us of his belief in ours. I do appreciate that too. This this program had a lot to do with um, the the changeover in how recovery is seen in the medical field, and it opened up a lot of studies that maybe weren't being fully addressed in in the, the way that they were. It did also, unfortunately, create some kind of. I mean, I have seen recovery gurus sprout up a lot lately. These people that are like, take our free consultation and then find out if I can help you stay sober. And so that's that's a side of it too. You know, these counseling co these 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 sobriety coaches that are gonna like fucking be your sponsor for a fee, basically. That sprung up as well, you know? And so it, it paved the way for a lot of stuff and not all of it was good, but uh, the stuff that was good was has been pretty fucking amazing. Every few days, this doctor suggests our approach to one of his patients. Understanding our work, he can do this with an eye to selecting those who are willing and able to recover on a spiritual basis. I'm sure people here have taken that questionnaire, that 20-question questionnaire while waiting in the office, the doctor's office. Are you an alcoholic? Answer these 20 questions. I used to answer all of them. Uh, sometimes I wouldn't answer all of them and I'd get like an 18 or something. I think that was great. And it's like, if you've answered yes to any of these, <laughs> then <laughs> you might, you might have a problem. Maybe I'm the only one. Many of us former patients go there to help. Then in this Eastern city, there are informal meetings such as we have described to you where you may now see scores of members. There are the same fast friendships. There is the same helpfulness to one another as you find among our Western friends. There's a good bit of travel between East and West, and we foresee a great increase in this helpful interchange. It's, it's yeah, the fact that they were like, we got 15 people 30 miles away, you know, things are looking up, and it's literally worldwide right now. Amazing shit. Someday, we hope that every alcoholic who journeys will find a fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in his distinction. To some extent, there is already true. This is already true. Some of us are salesmen and go about little clusters of twos and threes and five fives of, of us. It's a weird sense. Have sprung up in other communities through contact with our two larger centers. Those of us who travel drop in as often as we can. This practice enables us to lend a hand at the same time avoiding certain alluring distractions of the road about which any traveling man can inform you. Thus we grow, and so you can, though you be but one man with this book in your hand. Ugh, fucking tough one. And so can you, though you be but one man with this book in your hand. Sorry, it was, it's broken up with this asterisk that was, uh, was provided at the last that paragraph. It kind of threw me off here. Written in 1938, this is the asterisk. In 2017, there are over 118,305 groups 
There is AA activity in approximately 180 countries with an estimated membership of over 2 million, which I'm sure has increased since then. 118,305 groups. That's a lot of groups. You know, most of the meetings I go to are between 15 and 30 people. We believe and hope it contains all you will need to begin. We know what you're thinking. I doubt that. You are saying to yourself, I'm jittery and alone. I couldn't do that. But you can. You forget that you have just now tapped a source of power much greater than yourself. Duplicate, with such backing, what we have accomplished is only a matter of willingness, patience, and labor. And it's kind of the requirement of the program. Like, you don't have to go to the extent that these folks were going. Like, I don't like the idea of the measurement of effort thing that can happen, you know, with people that are in recovery. You know, I've, I chair seven meetings and I, you know, scrub down the building every day and I do, I, I see eight, I'm on 12 step calls three times a day. And like, I get that some people need that sort of internal validation by the actions that they put out, but don't think anybody else's efforts are a reflection of like what you should or shouldn't be doing. It's all based on your own recovery. If you're putting the chairs away at the meeting that you go to that, and that's all you can fucking muster, then that's it. If all you can do is show up to a meeting, that's enough. That's it. That's, you don't have to do more. Sometimes that's all that's required is that you just show up. Just show up to your recovery. It's all any of us want. So don't get stuck in that I'm not doing enough because I'm not doing enough for others. You will. It just kind of happens naturally because people are going to encourage that. If you're struggling, if you're if you're especially struggling on like how you view yourself, helping others is the best way to get out of that. You know, if, if your recovering is kind of like stagnant, you feel like maybe you're starting to slip back, helping others, man, working with others, is the best way to do that. And sometimes the best way to help others for some is to just fucking make some coffee, you know, or clean up after the meeting or whatever silent thing that you can do that's still helpful to the meeting. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be vocal and loud and out there. Some people are going to do that for you. But show up, you know, very, very, very bare minimum is just showing up and being present and being being there. We know of an AA member who was living in a large community. He had lived there but a few weeks when, when he found that the place probably contained more alcoholics per square mile than any city in the country. I love that. Like, like, how could they possibly know? This was only a few days ago at this writing, back in 1939. The authorities were much concerned. He got in touch with a prominent psychiatrist who had undertaken certain responsibilities for the mental health of the community. Could you imagine that happening now? Could you imagine if, like, your shit neighborhood in your town, whatever crazy neighborhood that you might have, we have a few. One that I grew up in called Felony Flats is a, is a very hectic, chaotic neighborhood. I lived there for much of my life. Uh, could you imagine if a psychiatrist just came down and was like, I'm going to help this place, right? How weird is that to even think about? Like, I'm going to descend on this little portion of this city and uh, I'm going to help these people. A psychiatrist just showed up. It was like knocking on doors like, hey, I, uh, you know, I'm a head shrink. Let's get some mental health going. Woo. Like just such a fucking bizarre concept to even think about. The doctor proved to be able and exceedingly anxious to adopt any workable method of handling the situation. So he inquired, what did our friend have on the ball? Our friend proceeded to tell him and with such good effect that the doctor agreed to a test among his patients and certain other alcoholics from the clinic which he attends. Arrangements were also made with the chief psychiatrist of a large public hospital to select still others from the stream of misery which flows through that institution. So our fellow worker will soon have friends galore. Some of them may sink and perhaps never get up. But if our experience is a criterion, there more than half of those approached will 
also become fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. When a few men in this city have found themselves and have discovered the joy of helping others to face life again, there will be no stopping until everyone in that town has had his opportunity to recover, if he can and will. Still, you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you who wrote this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real resilience is always upon him. He will oh, will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. That's a that's an asterisk. I just realized, or maybe there isn't. No, there's another asterisk. Asterisks are very strange in this. There is an asterisk. Alcoholics Anonymous will be glad to hear from you. Address P.O. Box uh, four fifty nine Grand Central Station. I I actually think that's still the address. It is. Google confirms it. Since this book was written in nineteen thirty nine, it's still the address. It's still the P.O. Box. It's fucking insane. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we only know a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. So I I don't do that. I Of course, right? But I do try or have been trying to start my day a little bit more outside myself if possible. Like I check in with how I'm feeling, but like I already kind of do that at night. So I, like... When I first start the day, I've just been trying to give myself a couple minutes before I reach for a phone or before I do any like major activities or or get stuck in my head about how the day is going to probably go. I just try to give my myself a few minutes. And and that that seems to help a lot. Like I can tell when my day's off because I haven't given myself that moment. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Uh, yeah, you know, if you're if your shit's all fucked up and you're trying to help other people, you're really just trying to help them fuck their own shit up. You know, you got to make sure that you're in good standing. Have a beginning sense of how this stuff. That's why I kind of like I'm at odds with how they describe sponsorship. Like they kind of describe sponsorship like as this thing that you do immediately after you get done with the steps. And I don't know that that's healthy. I personally don't. I waited a while before I considered sponsoring other people because I wanted to be in a better place. I wanted to make sure I was in a good place. Now, there was a little bit of procrastination that came with that, but that's why I had a sponsor because he could remind me, hey, you're supposed to be giving this to other people. You need to be shaking hands and, and talking with people about them maybe needing someone to walk them through this. Like, don't shuck your responsibilities because you're scared, blah, blah, blah. But it absolutely was not going to be on the table a few weeks after my recovery. Do the steps immediately sponsor. It's a terrible thing that might happen, and I hope that doesn't. Thankfully, that's not been my experience. I haven't really been seeing that a lot, but there have been times where I, th- I feel like somebody started sponsoring other people right away or people that collect sponsors. That kind of worries me too. If you have 30 sponsors or like 12, you know, 15 sponsor sponsees, excuse me, how are you effectively applying any real time to those people? Like this isn't, they are, they're not Pokemon cards. This isn't like a sports team. You're not just, you know, sponsor a couple people. But, you know, each their own, I guess, with that, I think that that's spreading yourself too thin. I, I would want a sponsor that was going to be available. And I feel like if they had 20 people, I personally would put on myself the feeling that if I were taking up that sponsor's time, that I'm taking time away from others. That's kind of where I'm at with it. Uh, availability is important. But ultimately, make sure you're in a good place before you start trying to give this thing to other people. You know, may God uh, abandon yourself to God as you understand him, admit your faults to him and to your fellows, clear away the wreckage of your past, give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the spirit, fellowship of the spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. 
may God bless you and keep you until then. And that's it. That is the, uh, that is the entirety of Alcoholics Anonymous. First 164 pages. The holy text for some folks. If you've been listening along, then you know that that is not true for me. There is a lot in here for me to take out, but it is by no means to be taken exactly as it's written. I think it should be assessed as it's written and the faults in the writing explored and, you know, the history understood and seeing, you know, what people went through as important. You know, a lot of people get more out of the stories than they do out of the book. And of course that would happen because while the book does have a small guideline, right, to how this works, uh, the 12 steps and, and everything else, the actual fruit of that labor is more described from people that have have been handed down a version of of this process over time. It's not exactly as, but like I said, you don't sit down and go through the entire steps in eight hours or two days. Uh, the way that the fourth step is written is is kind of morphed into something else. You know, there's an additional column that people add that maybe isn't in the book. It all depends on who you talk to. There is sponsorship. You know, really wasn't defined in this. How a meeting should be ran was not defined in this. This was stuff that was all handed down through the years. And that's where I kind of, I mean, that's where I'm at with the book. You know, we, we as a collective have chosen things that we are, that we change and that we have latched onto and that we have morphed away from, or that we have, you know, tacked on, uh, interpreted differently. Yeah. I think it's important as an atheist, as, as we are, some of us are listening to this, that we do that in our own way. And it doesn't make it invalid because of our experiences, you know, being different from us not having a religion or some of us who have moved away from a religion, as many atheists do. None of that is invalid. Us scrutinizing this book is healthy. It's what we have been doing as a collective in Alcoholics Anonymous, so heavily scrutinizing this book. At one point, someone was like, here's how the meetings are going to go. And people were like, yeah, that's not in the book book, but I agree. And I can see us moving further away from that. Like I was talking about with Scully's and the other meeting types, you know, you go to this, this old school Scully's meeting and it's completely, almost completely unrecognizable from regular AA meetings because it's not the norm anymore, but it was in the fifties and the forties, that meeting type absolutely was. It's changed so much. AA as a whole has changed. It's people have changed. And, you know, maybe, maybe next year I, I just stop going altogether. Right. Maybe I find something else. Who knows? Um, but what I know is the bottom has been raised. Younger people are coming into the meetings. People are coming in sooner. They're not waiting until they literally lose everything and they're living under a bridge. The The bottom is ra- being raised. The old timers that don't like that because they feel like that they earn their seat through much more suffering and therefore others should too, uh, are kind of getting their heads out of their asses and, and seeing that, um, Somebody having less suffrage and still making it through the doors uh, isn't an invalid form of finding their way into recovery. Women are starting to be uh, more understood in the program. You know, there's there's conventions to allow this kind of stuff to happen. These these things are being expressed in a healthy way, despite what the book says. So keep scrutinizing the book if that's your interest. You know, if you have a uh, if you have something I should read, you have a recommendation for a book I should give it give a shot to and something maybe we should talk about here, let me know. There's a couple I'm definitely going to check out um, for now. I have a couple pamphlets that might seem a little thin to talk about, but should still make it through a whole episode. And I have uh, hopefully a guest that will that will want to come on as kind of a break 
before we head into the 12 by 12. And then, like I said, I think the best way that I'm going to go forward with this is to at first have a, a guest here and there, but have them be a bonus episode. That way people can kind of have their separated you know, if they if they want to listen to the speaker, they can. Um, if they like the format of how things have been going so far, they'll still have that. And then we could kind of go from there. And uh, I said my my socials at the beginning. I'll say them again. You can find me on Facebook, An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. You can find me on Twitter at An Atheist In. You can find me on Instagram, Atheist underscore In underscore AA. You can send me a Gmail at oneatheistinaa at gmail.com. You can evidently find me on TikTok <laughs> at uh, the Beardo, B-E-I-R-D-O. And hopefully um, we connect and hopefully you all keep listening. If the changeover isn't working and you feel like I'm moving away from my primary um, goals with this podcast in a way that isn't really something you're interested in, let me know. Like, let me know if you're excited to see or hear certain things. You know, I, I appreciate everybody who reaches out and I take everything into consideration. So I cannot thank everybody enough. If this is as far as our journey comes, the 20 something people that have listened so far, if this is it, uh, thank you. I, I can't appreciate it enough. I can't tell you how impactful this experience has been for me. So genuinely, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate all of it. For those that are going to continue on that want to hear more, uh, I appreciate you too. And I'm excited uh, to see what comes next and, uh, and to hear from more people that hopefully find this podcast useful. Thank you for keeping me sober one more day. And uh, I look forward to having you back.